you for that. Good morning, Riverview. It is a great joy to be back with you guys for like the 50th time. Uh, before we dive in uh, to our morning text, I just, I got to share something mind-blowing with you. Uh, many of you know, because you were there at the men's retreat a few weeks ago, uh, but driving to the retreat was insanely nerve-wracking for me. Uh, it was one of the hardest drives I've ever taken in my life because I drove up on a Friday, and the Thursday right before, uh, I spent the whole day at UCI Medical Center uh, at the bedside of my dad, who had full-on kidney failure, uh, heart failure. He was septic on top of that. Uh, he was hooked up to a 24-hour dialysis machine doing all the work his kidneys couldn't do. He had a feeding tube. Uh, and he was on a breathing machine. A respirator was doing 100% of his breathing for him. So he was in really, really bad shape. You know, my brother came down from Northern California, and we're thinking, like, this could be it. This could be uh, final goodbyes. So needless to say, I committed to doing the men's retreat, you know, months and months and months ago, and couldn't really bail on that. So I'm driving up Palomar Mountain just wrestling with Jesus and saying, God, for whatever reason, I feel like you're pushing me up this mountain. You want me here with the guys, the men from Riverview. But I, I'm, I feel really sketchy about it. And if you need me to turn around, just snap your fingers, and I will race back up the freeway and be by my dad's side in what might be his, his final days. So I get to the mountain. I see Pastor Mel. I let him in on the bad news. And... I hand him my notes. I'm like, if you have to pinch hit for me, you know, I might have to leave at the drop of a hat. So here's all the content uh, so the guys aren't left high and dry. And he said, just tell the guys as soon as you get up there. Guys, just come and rally around me, lay hands on me, pray a powerful prayer. And then Saturday rolls around. And I'm teaching the whole weekend on the attributes of God, just how huge and sovereign and gracious and good and powerful and everywhere present and all-knowing God is. And then there's a little break in the day, and I got to shoot a real gun for the first time. That was fun, shooting stuff, doing man stuff. Uh, so, but it was still kind of a nerve-wracking day, right? The whole time, this is in the back of my head, like, do I have to leave any second? Sunday morning, I wake up, to the following text from my mother. Some healing reports thank the men of Riverview for their faith in Yahweh Rapha, Yahweh the healer. Number one, dad is removed from dialysis forever possibly. Number two, dad is only on one liter oxygen and completely off the breathing machine. Number three, the swallow therapist got dad to drink teaspoons of water, then water chips, then apple juice, than applesauce. Very encouraging since yesterday applesauce caused nausea and vomiting. So he's off the feeding tube. Number four, physical therapist tested his arm and hand strength and was excited he's getting his strength back. He's very strong. Number five, not a single hallucination or disoriented thought expressed. Feeling so thankful and so hopeful. Thank you. Thank the men of Riverview. It was... And so I read that text to the guys in the morning, and 
guy raised his hand and says, yeah, I worked in the intensive care unit for decades. And what you just read, I never saw anything like that in my entire career. What you just read is nothing short of supernatural. That is a miracle, hands down. And so here we are, like 60 guys in the mountain, you know, we're all smelly from shooting stuff all day and running around. And the room was just charged, like, what do we do with this news? What do we do? We just want to worship. And I think, Tim, it was you, you're like, can we just worship right now? And so I just grabbed a guitar behind me, and the men of Riverview belted out the most powerful version of How Great Thou Art I've ever heard in my entire life. It was just, in decades of ministry, it was easily one of the most powerful moments I've ever experienced, and I had the privilege of experiencing that with the men of Riverview. So, <laughs> so the update, my dad is doing great. He's home. He went home from intensive care. He is, he's thriving. He's got a new lease on life. His heart is pumping full capacity. His kidneys are coming back. It's just one answered prayer after another. So I wanted to start there uh, just to remind you that the God we were just singing to 10 minutes ago, the God we're going to learn about for the next 25 minutes, he is alive and well. He is real and poised to heal. He is good and gracious and sovereign. Amen? All right, let's dive into our text for the day. I'm going to be reading from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You don't have to flip there. It's just going to be one verse. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to be reading verse 3. And to set the context, Paul is uh, going to cite the earliest creed in church history. The earliest summary of a Christian worldview. And we know it's early, because if you read it in Greek, it reads very clunky. It's not smooth. The Greek phrasing is really awkward. But if you turn it into Aramaic, <coughs> which the early, early, early church spoke, it flows really smooth. And so scholars look at that and say, we are looking at when probably the earliest statement, summary of a Christian worldview in recorded history. And here's how it starts. Verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Let me read that one more time. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Paul is saying the number one priority, the most important news in the entire universe the best message that has ever struck planet Earth is the crucifixion of Jesus for our sins. That is the best news in history. Now, my question to you is, how often do you actually speak up about that good news? How many of you would you say you could share the gospel more than you do? You'd like to actually share the gospel more than you actually do. Anybody? Yeah, my hand is, is way up. I think we all, we all feel that. Well, here's the thing. If I had to name today's message, uh, the title would be this. Uh, Becoming a missionary on the closest mission field, your own heart. Becoming a missionary on the closest mission field, your own heart. And what I'm getting at here is, you know, there's mission fields out in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. There's mission fields out in Siberia. 
There's brothers and sisters that we have sprawled all over the globe telling the good news of Jesus. But the truth is we're all commanded, not suggested, to make disciples of the nations. We're commanded to be walking billboards for the gospel. Uh, there's that famous saying that um, there's five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and your life, and most people will only bother to read the fifth, right? And so the question is, is your life, are you a walking, talking gospel? And I know when I take a serious look in the mirror, I don't share the gospel nearly enough. And what I've found is if I'm preaching it to myself, if I'm preaching the good news to myself, I spontaneously want to tell others the good news. Why? Because I'm enjoying Jesus, so I can't shut up about it. If I'm not preaching the gospel to myself, it's crickets for me. Nobody's hearing the gospel within a 10-mile radius of me. And so the bottom line here is everybody in the room, you're already evangelists for whatever you enjoy. Just uh, two nights ago, my wife and I were flipping through uh, HBO and up popped First Man. Has anybody seen First Man with Ryan Gosling? Only a few of us? Well, basically no one? Okay. <laughs> well, we were blown away. It, it's the Neil Armstrong story about the first lunar landing. And we like turned it on at like 10 at night. The kiddos were in bed. And we were both super tired, like we're probably only going to last five minutes through this. And we were like on the edge of the couch for like two and a half hours. It was that good. And so we hung out with some neighbors last night and we enjoyed the movie so much. We noticed like we were now evangelists for First Man. We couldn't shut up about it. And some of our other neighbors were evangelists for Breaking Bad. You got to watch Breaking Bad. It's the best. Right. We're all already walking billboards for whatever we're enjoying. It might be the latest show to drop on Netflix. It might be the latest album to drop. But you are all already evangelists because you're enjoying those things. You want other people to get in on the action. And so I think our problem with evangelism cuts deeper. We need to start on the mission field in our own heart. And the more our joy in Jesus rises exponentially, we will become the kind of people who just can't shut up about Jesus. So, I want to talk about how to do that. But first, there's, there's one thing to clear up on just getting the gospel right and how to preach it to ourselves. Uh, there's a stat I throw out <clears throat> almost every time I'm here. Some of you might remember. What is, according to 82% of born-again Christians, their favorite Bible verse? I hear John 3.16. That would be wrong. Any other guesses? God helps those who help themselves. That, that to the tune of 82% in a Barna research poll was the favorite Bible verse of American, quote, born-again Christians. Can anybody give me a chapter and verse on that one? No. First, not in the Babylonians 3.16, right? It's not there. And not only is God helps those who help themselves not in the inspired text, it's the opposite. It's the antithesis of the driving biblical message. The gospel is not God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who are utterly broken beyond self-help. Amen? And so we got to make sure we get our gospel right. There was another study that just came out from Lifeway Research called the State of American Theology Study. And in the research report, they found that 83% 
of self-identified evangelicals, quote, agree or somewhat agree with the statement that a person obtains peace with God by first taking the initiative to seek God, and then God responds with grace. 83% of evangelicals in America think that you reach up to God first, you're, you're the initiator, God looks down and is like, wow, like, that's impressive. Look how spiritual they are. Look how good they are. Look at all that initiative they're taking. I really want them on my team. Let me just tell you flat out, that is a false gospel. That's not the way it works. The way it works is you and I were dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2. You were flatlined. You were a corpse. You were rotting. You were lifeless to the things of God unable to respond even with a little pinky twitch towards God. You had middle fingers extended in the face of your creator when he reached down by grace and grace alone and jolted spiritual life into your corpse. If you have any ounce of spiritual life in you this morning, that is 110% the grace of God. Amen? And so we're going to talk about how do we preach that to ourselves on a daily basis. And this is something... Uh, this is actually going to be a two-parter. I'm going to be back here in two weeks and, and walk you through uh, a, a very helpful method I've been using over the last seven years. Uh, every day I will run through the ABCs of the cross. And so we're going to dive into that next week, or, or in two weeks. But to, to take things a little bit deeper, I want to look at three ways to not preach the gospel to yourself. Uh, I want to look at three heresies through church history. We're going to kind of hop in a DeLorean and go 88 and get our flux capacitor fluxing and generate 1.21 gigawatts and travel through church history together and look at three heresies, three really bad ideas about the cross, three misunderstandings about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is of first importance. So the first way to get the good news of the cross wrong uh, comes from a guy named Origen. Origen was one of the early church fathers uh, he called, uh, his theory came to be known as the ransom theory. Any theology nerds here who have heard of the ransom theory before? Yeah, do you remember the gist of it? Not so much. Uh, it's basically the idea that Jesus died because Satan owned you. Satan had a legal right. Satan had the deed to your soul. And because you belong to Satan, the only way God could buy you back was by meeting Satan's demand for shed blood. That's the ransom theory. That's Origen's theory. Origen tends to get uh, most things wrong. <laughs> if you ever start getting into the history of theology and you ever pick up any Origen, chances are he's off base. Uh, in fact, should I tell this story again? Uh, yes, yes is the answer. Uh, just quick rabbit trail on Origen, the church father. Uh, he's famous for having an allegorical approach to the text. So he didn't take the Bible literally. He spiritualized everything. Except for one particular verse that he took in an extremely literal sense. Uh, which is when Jesus says, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your left arm causes you to sin, chop it off. Because it's better to lose a body part than to have your whole body perish in the hellfire. That was the one verse... In 66 books of the Bible that Origen decided, nope, that one's super literal. Like, if I'm going to allegorize the text, that's the first verse I'm going to allegorize, right? 
So, Origen struggled with lust. So you can fill in the blanks with what poor Origen did to himself. So, true story, fun fact from church history. See, church history is fun. Uh, so get, anyway, getting back to the ransom theory. What's the problem with thinking Jesus died on the cross to pay off the devil? Well, there's a brilliant theologian uh, named Wayne Grudem, and he says it better than I could. He says, uh, the ransom theory falsely thinks of Satan rather than God as the one who required that a payment be made for sin. And this completely neglects the demands of God's justice with respect to sin. It views Satan as having much more power than Satan actually has, namely the power to demand whatever he wants from God. You see what Grudem's getting at? Origen was wrong because Jesus didn't die to pay off the devil. He died to satisfy the justice of the Father. He died to pay off the full, infinite brunt of wrath that you and I deserve for offending the infinite glory of the Father. It wasn't a payment to Satan. But where a lot of people uh, kind of get exposed to this view by a show of hands, how many of you guys have read Narnia? Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe? Yep. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I was reading to my oldest. Uh, my oldest daughter was homesick from school, and it was all rainy outside, and she was just passed out on the couch surrounded by Kleenexes. And I decided, you know, we got eight free hours. We're just going to bust through the line, witch, and wardrobe together. And she is into it, man. I mean, she is hooked. She's hanging on every word. And we're finally getting to that part, uh, you know, how Edmund sells his soul to the white witch for those little Turkish delights. And so now the white witch, the devil character, has legal uh, ownership of Edmund and his soul. And so we're getting to the part where Aslan is going to redeem Edmund from the white witch's grip. It's that famous scene where Aslan is approaching the stone table and the white witch is demanding blood if she's going to release Edmund. And I'm kind of looking out of the corner of my eye at, at Gracie, uh, and I'm thinking, she's so into this. It wouldn't surprise me if she just, like, broke down in tears when Aslan is executed. And wouldn't that be beautiful for her to realize in a new way, thanks to the power of fiction, just the power of what Jesus accomplished for her redemption? And so I'm reading looking out the corner of my eye with all these high expectations. It's just going to strike her. It's going to break her heart. And she's going to have a fresh, deeper understanding of the cross work of Jesus. So I'm reading along. I'm reading along. And Aslan is walking through. He's flanked on both sides by the white witch's minions. And they're shouting insults. And Lewis writes the line um, from one of the white witch's minions. Behold, the noble lion is just a little frail pussycat. And my daughter loses it, cracking up, laughing. She thought that was the funniest thing ever. She's just like, oh my God, it's a lion, you're just a little pussycat. And she like <laughs> laughed for like five minutes. So it was one of those ultimate theologian parenting fails. You're expecting your kid is going to be so moved by the gospel. And instead she got cracked up by a cat joke. So <laughs> that didn't go that great. Uh, but anyway, that, that's typically cited as the ransom theory because the white witch is demanding payment, and Aslan now has to pay her off in order to redeem Edmund. And so Lewis has been accused over the years of being heretical in his view of the cross. In Lewis's defense, if you read Narnia a little closer, just another fun fact, 
get to decide I want Aslan's blood. It was actually the deep magic, Lewis calls it. The deep magic, the creator of all of Narnia set the rules of justice that for there to be forgiveness, there has to be the shedding of blood, which is actually really good theology. So there's my tip of the hat to Clive Staples Lewis. All right, uh, that's one way to get the cross wrong, the ransom theory. A second way to get the gospel wrong, uh, this one's called Abelard's moral theory. Abelard was a French theologian, Peter Abelard, and this one will hit a little closer to home. I'm sure you guys have all heard this. How many of you have ever heard the gospel presented this way? I asked God how much he loves me. He stretched out his arms and said this much and died for me. You guys ever heard the gospel presented that way before? Yeah, it's super common. And it's true so far as it goes. But it's only a half-truth. Because what Abelard taught was that the whole point of the cross, the only point of the cross, was God's way of saying, look how much I love you, and that's it. But what's missing in that picture? Justice. Right? If I... Who am I going to pick on this service? Um, Dan, can I pick on you for a little bit? Awesome. So Dan's a good guy. We had you know, fun up in the mountains shooting stuff and, uh, and hanging out. And we had some really great conversations over meals. So if I look at my brother Dan and I say, Hey, man, I love you. He'd be like, Oh, great, thanks. I love you too. But what if I took it a step further? I said, Dan, I don't think you're hearing me, man. I really, really love you. And I grab the Bible, and I just bash myself in the nose with it. He's like, whoa, buddy, like, pump the brakes. I get it. You, you like me. You, you love me. That's, that's fantastic. And then I get a stool, and I'm like, you're not hearing me. I really, really, really love you. He's like, what are you doing? Like, stop beating yourself up. I get it. You love me. You see the problem, how absurd that scenario is, because there's no point to the pain. If we do the same thing with the cross, if we follow Abelard and just say that it's God's way of saying, I love you. Do you hear how nonsensical that would sound to a non-believer? A non-Christian hears that and it's like, okay, so God's proving that he loves me by torturing his son? How, how is that love? That's just cruel, Right? The cross only makes sense if we talk about it as, yes, the expression of God's perfect, infinite love for you, and simultaneously the perfect expression of his infinite justice and wrath. If you have love and no justice, you've lost the cross. If you have justice and no love, you've lost the cross. It's where both intersect perfectly. And so one of the ways uh, I think this comes out in American Christianity in particular, one of the reasons we kind of, even if we wouldn't admit it, when we share the gospel, if we share the gospel, it's more of an Abelard type, well, it's just God's love, is because if you get to the justice part, you have to talk about sin. You have to talk about divine wrath. And the second you do that, you run the risk of hurting people's feelings, right? You run the risk of offending someone. You run the risk of being branded a bigot or a phobic, right? And so what do we do? We don't like to be called names. And so we edit the gospel down to just God's love, and we don't want to talk about the justice part. And when we do that, we're no longer sharing the biblical gospel. There's 
worse things than not being liked. There's worse things than being called names, like not obeying the Scripture's commands to share the whole counsel of God. Amen? Let me illustrate it quickly before we hit our, our third and final heresy of the morning. Uh, years ago, a long time ago now, I'm getting old, <laughs> I took my wife ring shopping. And so we walk into the local jewelry shop. It was like a Robbins Brothers or something. We go in, and they pull out all these diamonds that are way out of my price range. And they bring out this dark black, like, satin cloth. And one by one, they lay the diamonds on there. And what was cool about it was against that dark backdrop, you really saw every glimmer, every ray of light that that diamond cut. That, that diamond was reflecting. Why the, the black cloth? Because it makes the thing shine. It makes it pop. And so what we do as an American church when it comes to sharing the gospel is we don't want the black cloth. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about divine wrath. We don't want to talk about the reality of hell as eternal conscious torment for those who die apart from Christ. And so as we slide out that black cloth from underneath the gospel, the cross loses its luster. Does that make sense? So we need to love people enough to tell them the truth about sin, divine justice, and God's solution that is the cross of Christ. Uh, let's move on as we wind down to a third way that we can get the cross wrong so we can better preach the gospel to ourselves. Uh, this one I, I'm going to call Leo X's penance theory. Leo X, uh, for those of you who don't know, I, I taught on him a little bit uh, back in Reformation Day last, uh, last October. Uh, he was the Pope in the 16th century, and if we hopped in our time machine, if we went 88 miles an hour and we're hanging out in the early 16th century, and we're wandering around Europe, like, how do I get saved? How do I get right with God? The answer of the Roman Catholic Church at the time was... Here's these scraps of paper. This is a plenary indulgence, it was called. This little scrap of paper, you had to pay, you had to shell out the big bucks for it. And that would give you uh, instant entry through the pearly gates uh, when you died. So you had to literally buy salvation, the opposite of a free gift. You would hear, oh, well, if you want to get to heaven faster, go gaze at the skull bone of St. Peter. You have to pay a fee, and you have to chant this incantation while you're looking at it, and that'll get you to heaven faster. You have to go look at uh, the, the leg bone of St. John. You have to go look at this little wood shard from the cross of Jesus. You have to do X, Y, and Z. You have to pray through the rosary beads over and over and over and over, and that still goes on today in, in Catholic churches. You go to the confessional booth, and you walk out of there with your prescription. Pray these 200 Hail Marys, and that'll wipe out, you know, yesterday's sins. Now, it's easy for us to look at all those acts of penance, all those ways of trying to earn God's favor and just prove, God, am I enough? Have I worked off this sin? Am I sorry enough? Have I proven myself? Am I worthy of salvation? It's easy to look at that in the Catholic context and say, oh, well, we know better. We don't mess around with all that penance stuff. You know, we're, we're an easy free church. We don't, we don't buy into all that Catholicism. But think about it. Don't we have our own forms of penance, too? Let me give one personal example that I think uh, you can relate with. When I first became a Christian, I was 14 years old, 
And believe it or not, I sinned a lot and still do. And I would go through this ritual where I would sin and then I would get down on my knees by the side of my bed and I would just say, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, but I would still feel guilty. So I just keep saying sorry. I'm really sorry. And then I would make these outlandish promises. I'd say, God, I will never, ever, ever do that again. And then next day rolls by, and of course I do it again. It's like, God, okay, I'm really super duper sorry. I'm so, so sorry. That was the last, I will never, ever do that again. Next day, sin again. So same prayer. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then I would feel guilty because I wasn't feeling guilty enough. So I'd actually have to say sorry about my sorries. How's that feedback treating you guys? Uh, so I'd have to say sorry for not being sorry enough, and then I wasn't sorry enough about those sorries, and it just became this downward spiral. And there was very little peace, very little joy in that. What was I doing? I might as well have been praying the rosary. I might as well have been trying to gaze at a holy relic. I might as well have been trying to buy a plenary indulgence. I was trying to save myself by trying to muster up sorry feelings. And you know, when, when the breakthrough came for me was when instead of focusing on myself, instead of fado-centric prayers, I started praying Christocentric prayers. Instead of zeroing in on how guilty I did or didn't feel, I, start, I redirected my attention to the finished work of Jesus on the cross, what Paul calls the first thing, what is most important. And so I would just pray and say, Jesus, thank you for being my atoner, I was an enemy of you, and you have made me at one with the Father through your cross work. Thank you. B, you are my battlefield hero. You crushed Satan's head on my behalf. You destroyed the enemy of my soul. C, you're the chain breaker. You set me free from bondage to sin. D, you're my defense attorney. You plead my justification. You plead my not guilty sentence, and you win every case because you have the knockdown, drag-out argument of your own shed blood. Thank you for being my defense attorney. E, you're my eternal priest. You made the once-for-all sacrifice on my behalf. Do you hear how that's a different prayer altogether than, I'm so, so sorry, I'll never do it again. I'm so, so sorry, I'll be a good boy. And so I encourage you, one way to preach the gospel to yourself is when you confess sin, make it all about Jesus, not about how sorry you do or don't feel. So let me um, close with two quick uh, illustrations. You guys... Some of you have already heard uh, one of these, uh, but I think it'll help drive the point home. Uh, about five years ago, our oldest daughter, Gracie, had her eyes on this hot pink Barbie Huffy bike. It was the one with like the streamers that come off the handlebars and it had a big, you know, blazing Barbie logo on it. And she just asked about this bike every day for about six months leading up to Christmas. Christmas morning rolls around. She comes racing down the stairs, and there it is in all of its glory. And my wife and I could not get her off that thing for all of Christmas Day. She was just riding around the cul-de-sac in circles. That's what actually happened. But let's picture an alternate universe. Christmas morning rolls around. Gracie comes racing down the stairs, there it is in all of its hot pink glory. And she looks at me and she says, Daddy, can I have a bike? You, you mean like that one? <laughs> the one right there? 
yeah, that's great, Dad. Thanks for that. But I really, really, really want a bike. Uh, like, like a hot pink one? Like a Barbie one with streamers coming off the handlebars? You know, like that? Yeah, like the one that's literally right behind you. Yeah, thanks, Dad. That's cool and everything. But please, I'm begging you. I'll be a good girl. I'll eat my broccoli. I will do laundry. I will scrub toilets. I will, you name it, I'll do it. I will be so good if I could just please, please, I'll be a good girl. Can I have a bite? So at this point, I'm lifting her now onto the seat, and she's still pleading with me. I'll be so good, Daddy. Please, I'm sorry for anything I've done wrong. Please, can I have this bike? Now I'm pushing her down the driveway. She's rolling away, shouting over her shoulder, please, Daddy, please. Why is that story so ridiculous? Because she's asking and begging and pleading for something that's already been paid in full. We do the same thing, don't we? God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Please give me grace. It is paid in full. You can't add one iota to the perfect cross work of Jesus. He is all the perfection you will ever need. He is all the righteousness you will ever need. He is all the worthiness you will ever need. Amen? Closing story comes from one of my favorite theologians of all time. Uh, he's out of Deerfield, Illinois, a guy named Don Carson. And Don Carson invites us to time travel back to the very first Passover. Very first Passover, and we picture these two Jewish neighbors. They just got word from Moses. God said, if you paint lamb's blood on your doorpost, then the angels of God's wrath will pass over your house and your family will be saved. And so they're like, all right, Moses said it. He's speaking for God. Let's do this. So they get their buckets of lamb's blood and, and they're standing on their lap painting their doorposts. And one guy looks over at his neighbor and he says, this is weird. I don't know if I buy this. Can we really trust that just spreading a dead lamb's blood on a doorpost is going to save our families from divine wrath? Like, that seems like a stretch. That seems a little far-fetched to me. I, I don't know, man. His other neighbor looks at him and says, Why are you doubting? God said this will work. We can trust God. God's got this. This is the way to be saved. Keep painting.